This is section 25 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 25, Territorial Enterprise, January 1866. Territorial Enterprise, January 1866. New Year's Day. There was a good deal of visiting done here on New Year's Day. The air was balmy and spring-like, and the day was in every way suited to that sort of business. I say business, because it is more like business than pleasure when you call at a house where all are strangers, and the majority of one's New Year calls are necessarily of that description. You soon run through the list of your personal friends, and that part of the day's performances affords you genuine satisfaction. And then Smith comes along, and puts you through your paces before a hundred people who treat you kindly, but whom you dare not joke with. You can be as easy and comfortable as a mud-turtle astraddle of a sawyer, but you must observe some show of decorum. You must behave yourself. It is irksome to me to behave myself. Therefore I had rather call on people who know me and will kindly leave me entirely unrestrained, and simply employ themselves in looking out for the spoons. When I started out visiting at noon, the atmosphere was laden with a sweet perfume, a grateful incense that told of flowers and green fields and breezy forests far away. But this was only soda-water sentiment for I soon discovered that these were the odors of the barber-shop, and came from the heads of small squads of carefully dressed young men who were out paying their annual calls. I took wine at one house and some fruit at another, and after that I began to yearn for some breakfast. It took me two hours to get it. A lady had just given me the freedom of her table when a crowd of gentlemen arrived, and my sense of propriety compelled me to destroy nothing more than a cup of excellent coffee. At the next house I got no further than coffee again, being similarly interrupted. At the next point of attack there were too many strange young ladies present, and at the next and the next something always happened to interfere with my arrangements. I do not know, but perhaps it would be better to defer one's New Year's calls until after breakfast. I did finally corral that meal, and in the house of a stranger, a stranger, too, who was so pleasant that I was almost tempted to create a famine in her house. It used to be customary for people to drink too much in the course of their annual visits, but few offended in this way on this occasion. I saw one well-dressed gentleman sitting on the curbstone, propping his head between his knees, and clasping his shins with his hands. But he was the only caller I saw so much discouraged during the whole day. He said he had started out most too early, and I suppose he was right. Wisdom teaches us that none but birds should go out early, and that not even birds should do it unless they are out of worms. Some of the ladies dressed in character on New Year's. I found faith, hope, and charity in one house, dealing out claret punch and kisses to the annual pilgrims. They had two kinds of kisses, those which you bite and chaw and swallow, 
and those which you simply taste, and then lick your chops and feel streaky. The only defect there was in the arrangement was that you were not permitted to take your choice. Two other ladies personated Mary, Queen of Scots, and Queen Elizabeth. I also found a Cleopatra, and a Hebe, and a Semiramis, and a Maria Antoinette. Also a beauty, and a beast. A young lady, formerly of Carson, was the beauty, and took the character well. And I suppose Beecher was the beast, but he was not calculated for the part. I think those are very neat compliments for both parties. When it came to visiting among strangers, at last I soon grew tired and quit. You enter with your friend, and are introduced formally to some formal-looking ladies. You bow painfully, and wish the party a happy new year. You then learn that the party desire that a like good fortune may fall to your lot. You are invited to sit down, and you do so. About this time the doorbell rings, and Jones, Brown, and Murphy bluster in and bring the familiar fragrance of the barber-shop with them. They are acquainted, they inquire cordially after the absent members of the family and the distant relatives of the same, and relate laughable adventures of the morning that haven't got anything funny about them. Then they cast up accounts and determine how many calls they have made, and how many they have got to inflict yet. The ladies respond by exhibiting a balance sheet of their own New Year's Day transactions. Yourself and your friend are then conducted with funeral solemnity into the back parlor, where you sip some wine with imposing ceremony. If your human instincts get the upper hand of you, and you explode a joke, an awful sensation creeps over you, such as a man experiences when he catches himself whistling at a funeral. It is time for you to go, then. New Year's was pretty generally enjoyed here, upstairs and down. At one place where I called, a servant girl was needed for something, and the bell was rung for her several times without effect. Madame went below to see what the matter was, and found Bridget keeping open house and entertaining thirteen muscular callers in one batch. Upstairs there had been only eleven calls received all told. One chambermaid notified her mistress that extra help must be procured for New Year's Day, as she and the cook had made arrangements to keep open house in the kitchen, and they desired that their visitors should not be discommoded by interruptions emanating from above stairs. I am told that nearly all the biddies in town kept open house. Some of them set finer tables than their mistresses. The reason was because the latter did not consider anything more than tea and coffee and cakes necessary for their tables, being church members, but the former seized upon wines, brandies, and all the hidden luxuries the closets afforded. Some people affect to think servant girls won't take liberties with people's things, but I suppose it is a mistake. Reprinted in The Golden Era, January 14, 1866 Territorial Enterprise, January 1866, dated January 8, 1866. White Man, Mighty on Sartan. Nigger never spoke truer word. White Man is mighty on Sartan. An instance of it is to be found in the ingenious manipulation of a certain recent speculation here by a white man, whom I have in my mind's eye at present. A small swimming-bath was constructed out yonder at North Beach as a sort of novel experiment, 
and everybody was surprised to see what a rush was made to it and what a thriving speculation it at once became many a smart man wished the idea had occurred to him and then thought no more about it others pondered over it and thought the experiment might bear repetition but then there was an uncomfortable possibility of the reverse proving the case mr alec badlam late a member of the california legislature but latterly acting in the double capacity of nephew and business agent to mr samuel brannan belonged to the latter class but was rather more hopeful more energetic and more fertile in expedients than the rest he went to work and got up a joint stock association composed of men with good bank accounts and announced in the public prints that this association would immediately commence the construction of a colossal swimming bath with all manner of admirable conveniences and accommodations away out in third street opposite south park many people went on swimming in the pioneer bath and many others in the bay and both parties said the new speculation would prove a disastrous failure and that they were sorry for the projectors of it etc and then bothered no more about it in a day or two the local reporters fell heirs to a refreshing sensation and were made happy a genuine shark was harpooned in the bay of san francisco it was brought to town and was visited by crowds of timid citizens while it lay in state in the market-place mr badlam went at once to the various newspaper offices and told the reporters and was greeted with the ancient formula that's bully there's pen and ink write it up for a fellow can't you you know if you walk a mile to accommodate one of these thieves with an item he will always impose upon you with infernal effrontery the labor of writing it up for him if you will stand it mr badlam wrote up the shark item a few days elapsed the sensation was cooling down and beginning to be forgotten when another shark was harpooned in the bay and exposed to view in the market people shuddered again mr badlam went and told the reporters the reporters got him to write it up in the course of three days another shark was harpooned in the bay and placed on exhibition people began to show signs of uneasiness mr badlam told the reporters and wrote it up the new swimming bath was being rushed forward to completion with all possible dispatch from this time on for the next six weeks a shark cashed in his checks every twenty-four hours in the bay of san francisco mr badlam discontinued the ceremony of telling the reporters but he always came at one o'clock in the afternoon with several slips of manuscript laid one down on the reporter's table said shark item and departed toward the next newspaper office on his regular beat people began to say why blame these sharks the bay's full of them it ain't hardly as healthy to swim there as it used to was and they stopped swimming there reporters got to depending on the customary shark item pretty much as a matter of course and the printers got to making these items fat by keeping them standing and making such unimportant alterations in them as the variations in the localities of the shark killing demanded the fact of the business was that mr badlam that on sartin white man had imported the old original shark from the coast of mexico and paid some italian fishermen to take him out in the bay and harpoon him and then fetch him ashore and exhibit him in the market-place it was all in the way of business he wanted to discourage bathing in the bay 
and pave the way for the success of his great bathhouse scheme at a later day. It is but just to say that he did make bathing in the bay exceedingly unpopular. He imported all his sharks, and he kept a detachment of shark-killers under regular pay. Sharks come pretty high. Sharks are very expensive, and he economized occasionally by having the same old shark harpooned and exhibited over and over again, as long as he would hang together. And when he had to bring on a fresh one, he would vary the interest in the thing by having the fish captured alive and towed ashore and exposed to public view in all his native ferocity, and once he got a number of young pigs killed and scraped clean, towed a shark out in the bay, fed the pigs to him, towed him back again, and landed him at the head of the long bridge, where there were about two thousand people promenading on it, got a multitude collected around the spot, killed and cut the shark open, took several chunks of the delicate white young pork out of its stomach, and then hid his face in his handkerchief and said with manifest emotion, "'Oh, God, this fellow's been eating a child! Ah, how sad, how sad!' This culminating stroke of genius crowned Mr. Badlam's patient, long-continued efforts with a splendid success. No man has bathed in the bay since Mr. B. wrote that item up and traveled his regular newspaper route with it. His labors were over. The bathhouse was nearly finished, and he had nothing but easy sailing before him from that time forward. In a few days his monstrous tank was completed and the water turned on, and the very first day he opened business with a hundred and fifty swimmers an hour on an average, and a hundred and fifty more standing around in Mencken costumes waiting for a chance. There is nothing like trying, you know, and all experience teaches us that the best way to ascertain a thing is to find it. But when it comes to believing all the shark items a sagacious strategist favors you with in the papers, it is well to remember that the wise nigger saith, White man mighty unsartain, the Mint Defalcation. The Alta of this morning publishes a correct statement of the embezzlement by young Macy of $39,000 from the Mint, and you can copy it. But there are some little matters in the background which always come within a correspondence province in cases of this kind, but which are usually omitted from the accounts in the local press, and these I will talk about. Mr. Cheeseman is a U.S. sub-treasurer and ex-officio treasurer of the Mint. Macy, his brother-in-law, was his paying clerk, his cashier. He is a green, gawky young fellow, about twenty-four or five years old, and by a glance at his gait and the shape of his head and his general appearance, an experienced businessman would judge his capacity to be about equal to the earning of, say, fifty dollars a month but he was the sub-treasurer's brother-in-law. He was a barnacle, and had to be provided with a place in the circumlocution office, whether he knew enough to come in out of the rain or not. So he was made paying clerk at a salary of $2,500 a year, and placed in a position where twenty millions in gold coin and oceans of greenbacks passed through his hands in the course of a year. Mr. Swain, the superintendent of the Mint, did not fancy this appointment, but it was out of his jurisdiction. 
Mr. Cheeseman has the appointing of his own clerks, although all their reports must be made finally to the superintendent, and all their acts come under his supervision. Naturally, there was nothing bad about young Macy, but it is believed—well, I might go so far as to say it was known—that some mining speculators got around him and persuaded him to put mint funds in stocks, promising to stand behind him. He did so, and they stood behind him until the cash in stocks warned them to stand somewhere else, and then they dropped him, having made what they could out of him, no doubt. He had been speculating on the mint's money six months before he was found out, the workmen occasionally going without their wages in the meantime, because of the lack of supplies. Mr. Swain's suspicions were first aroused by seeing him so frequently in company with speculators, and hearing so often on the streets of his transactions in heavy stocks. But Macy's books came out right every month, and nothing could be shown against him. One of his thefts was a bold one. The coiners sent him three melts at different times, three batches of gold coin, two of a hundred thousand dollars each, and one of a hundred and twenty thousand. Each had the usual tag, describing the amount contained. Macy removed and tore up the $120,000 tag, and sent to the coiner a message that he had lost the tag from one of the $100,000 batches, a thing which sometimes occurs. The coiner sent him the necessary substitute, and he altered the date and placed the new tag on the $120,000 melt, but he carried off the extra $20,000 first. At the last quarterly examination, the money and the books were all right, but Macy displayed such distress and trepidation during the examination that he excited the suspicions of more than one of the mint officials. He had been shinning around the streets all day long, too, and it was thought that he had been getting a temporary loan to make his account straight with. Such a rigid surveillance was commenced then, and so many informal examinations instituted, that Macy finally packed and ran off. This was in December. The facts of this embezzlement have only just come to light, and its full extent only just now finally ferreted out and made known to the public. But the department at Washington has been kept posted upon the subject by telegraph from time to time during the last two or three weeks. THE OPENING NIGHT Saw two or three dozen invited guests in the new bath, and a free champagne blowout served up for them in an anteroom. The water was seven feet deep, and there was three hundred thousand gallons of it, heated to a pleasant temperature, barring the cold streaks here and there. Each man has a little stateroom to himself, and a couple of towels. The price of the baths is one for twenty-five cents or three for a dollar, and you can swim an hour. Mr. Nash's swimming pupils pay $10 a month or $20 for three months, and bathe whenever they please. There are springboards, parallel bars, rings, flying trapeze, ladders, a complete gymnasium, suspended over the water. Among the swimmers were, but as these individuals are represented in the panoramic sign on the front of the bathhouse, I will merely talk of their portraits and say nothing of their swimming. It is my duty to explain that sign, because 
many people imagine it is a fancy sketch and are distressed to think any artist would be so depraved as to paint such impossible figures and faces and elevate the devilish libel in full view without a word of apology the portraits in the bathhouse sign are very correct likenesses of the chief stockholders and are as follows the fleshy smiling bald-headed man hanging to the middle of the little lifeboat is mr o p sutton in the banking interest the bald-headed man hanging on near the stern of the boat is mr alec badlam the shark fancier the man on the left who is just starting on the springboard is colonel monstery the fencing master the inverted young man on the bow of the boat, who is performing some kind of extraordinary gymnastic feat, and appears to have got it a little mixed, is Captain McComb. The central figure, swinging on the trapeze, is Mr. Edward Smith, of the banking interest. The half-submerged figure, diving head foremost at the right of the central fountain, is Mr. A. J. Snyder, the carpenter and builder, and is a very correct portrait as far as it goes. The handsome fat man facing you from the stateroom door on the extreme left is Mr. Louis Cohn, and is considered a masterpiece of portrait painting. I cannot recognize the stockholder immediately under the springboard on the left on account of his truly extraordinary position. It may be Fitz Smythe, the gentleman who is splashing himself behind the figure in the swing, and has upon his countenance an expression of lively enjoyment, is Professor Nash. The figure in the swing is most too many for me. It may be Mencken, or it may be Jeff Davis, or it may be some other man or some other woman. It is the very picture that so exasperates the South Parkers. It has got baggy breasts like a squaw, and the hips have the ample and rounded swell which belong to the female shape, but the head is masculine that figure has worried the ladies of south park a good deal and it worries me just as much i shall have to let this personage swing on undisturbed and leave it to a wiser head to determine the sex and discover the name that belongs to it it would be very uncomfortable now if it should turn out that i have been mistaken and this remarkable picture should never have been intended for a collection of portraits after all in which case i beg pardon Territorial Enterprise, January, 1866. Precious Stones. I have seen some of the beautiful opals they find in Calaveras County near McCollumney Hill. Some of them are very handsome. A day or two ago I was shown an Idaho diamond. It was very pure and brilliant, and was said to be a genuine diamond, and of the first water. I compared it with a couple of splendid $2,500 Brazilian diamonds in Tucker's window, which have been dazzling people's eyes and attracting considerable attention for a few days past, and I could not swear to any difference. That amounts to something, although I am not an expert where it comes to estimating the value and fineness of diamonds, and now they are finding superb moss agates and other precious stones on the river bank right up here at Martinez. This reminds me that there is a hillside down the gulch below Aurora, Esmeralda, which is covered with round, hard, knotty-surfaced little boulders which display the most beautiful agates when broken open. Might not the Esmeralda people find it profitable to send a bushel or two of those things to the eastern markets? 
Nobody cared anything about them when I was there three years ago. Territorial Enterprise, January 1866. Dated January 11, 1866. Gorgeous New Romance by Fritz Smythe. The usual quiet of our city was rudely broken in upon this morning by the appearance in the Alta of one of those terrible solemn column romances about the hair-breadth escapes and prodigies of detective sagacity of the San Francisco police, written by the felicitous novelist Fitz Smythe. It is put up in regular chapters with subheadings, as is Fitz Smythe's custom, when he fulminates a stunning sensation. Chapter 1 is headed The Koinickers, Dark and Mysterious. Chapter 2 is headed A New Koiniker in the Field, The Plot Thickens. Then comes Chapter 4, The Police After Him, Exciting Times. Chapter 5, The Decoy Duck, More Mystery. Chapter 6, The New Decoy, the red hand of crime begins to show, somewhere. Chapter 7. The Arrest. Startling situation, thunder and lightning, blue lights burning. Chapter 8. The Queer Obtained. Thrilling revelations. Chapter 9. The Conviction. Closing in, closing in. The wicked are about to be punished, and the good rewarded. Chapter 10. Conclusion. The scattered threads are drawn together into one woof. The bad characters are sent to prison, to go from thence to hell. Detective Lees marries Detective Ellis. Chief Burke elevates his eyes and hands over the two kneeling figures, and says unctuously, "'God bless you, my children, God bless you.' All the good characters are happy, even down to Fitz Smythe and his horse." the former in a chance to go through a Chinese funeral dinner, and the latter in the opportunity of eating up a tank of warm asphaltum while the workmen are gone to dinner. Oh, but this is a lovely romance! And only think of the subject, the police. Think of a man going among the police for the hero of a novel, unless he wanted a highwayman or something of that kind. The romance is gotten up with several objects in view. One is to show how mean a thing it is to call for investigations of police affairs as Dr. Rowell is doing. Another is to try and bolster up the grand jury's recent vindication of the police department the other day, a vindication which the public did not accept with as much confidence as they would if it had come from heaven. Another is to show that the stool-pigeon Ned Wellington, Indian Ned, who was appointed a special officer by Burke, is no more of a thief or a rascal than many another man on the force, and I think that is unjust to Wellington. And another object, an eternal one with Fitz Smythe, is to glorify his god, the police. The latter is a disease with him. It breaks out all over the Alta every day, and it phases Smythe worse than the smallpox. Even his horse has become infected by the distemper, and will not bite a policeman. The unfiligreed facts in Smythe's column romance, or at least the facts in the case from which the romance was drawn, may be summed up in a few words, by leaving out the customary adulation of the inspired detectives. A counterfeiter named Farrell came here from the east. The police got after him in their bungling style and seared him away. He went to Virginia, and took ten thousand dollars counterfeit money with him, 
and buried it under a house, where your police discovered and captured it. He returned here, and a decoy duck was put on his track, and appointed a special policeman, Ned Wellington, or Smith, as Fitz Smythe with characteristic delicacy calls him in the romance, though why he should is not very plain, since Wellington is more notorious than Fitz Smythe himself. Smith was cunning, and trapped Farrell, though of course Smythe gives all the credit to Lees and Ellis. But now comes more trouble. Smith can show a commission, show that reposing a special confidence in the honesty, integrity, etc., etc., the police commissioners, one of whom was the police judge, had appointed him to a responsible position in the service of the city, and yet his character is so bad that it will not do to bring him on the stand to testify. More evidence must be had. Another stool-pigeon is put to work with Smith, one Roger G. Crawford, the assumed name of a private clerk of Chief Burke, as Smythe says. This man's real name was T. B. Fargo, alias Fogo, alias Howard, alias Crawford, and he was a grand rascal of considerable note, notwithstanding he was Chief Burke's confidential clerk. The two pigeons worked the case through to a successful conclusion. Farrell's counterfeit money was captured, and Farrell himself sent to the penitentiary. As is entirely proper, Fitz Smythe gives the credit to Detective Lees, and glorifies him to the skies. There is the romance, all there is of it worth knowing or printing. Yet it is turned into a novel of ten distinct chapters, and occupies more room and flames out with a grander sublimity in the Alta than did the capture of Richmond and the Southern armies as published in the same paper. How marvelous are thy ways, O Lord! Another romance. Why shouldn't I print a romance? Why shouldn't I lionize Smith, Ned Wellington, and Crawford, T.B. Fargo? Wouldn't they do for specimens of our police? I should think so, especially since the grand jury so triumphantly vindicated Wellington a few days ago. The following romance is from the pen of ex-special policeman L.W. Noyes. Ned Wellington, alias Indian Ned, is a stool-pigeon for Captain Lees of the police, and has a commission from the police commissioners as a secret detective, notwithstanding they all knew of his having been arrested frequently for various offenses. Ned, with one T.B. Fargo, worked on the case of William Farrell, alias Minnie Price, the counterfeiter, who was arrested last January. During Farrell's trial in the county court, Ned was a witness. While on the stand on the 11th March, he testified that he had a commission, as above stated, and that Captain Lees recommended him. Thus the commission was retained to give him authority to carry a pistol for his own defense. On the 24th December, 1864, Ned, being at the time convivious, shot at a man on Pike Street. He ran down Commercial Street, and Officer Blitz arrested him in Con Mooney's, corner of Commercial and Kearney Streets. He had thrown the pistol away behind some barrels, went with Blitz, and found it. He was taken to the station-house, where he was charged with assault with a deadly weapon, bail forfeited. The call of December 27th says the bail was fixed at five hundred dollars. I wonder if it was found. Ned has said that he intended to kill the man, and if he had, he could have got out of it. I think he could. On the 11th of March, the facts of Ned having a commission having come out in court naturally worries some of the police. 
The grand jury have been overhauling some of them. Next day, the 12th March, Ned was arrested for being implicated in a robbery, was liberated that night. Next day, the 13th, he left for New York on the steamer, no doubt fearing that he might be put upon the stand in the grand jury rooms. Ned is very shrewd, and he keeps his commission as a sort of fender to put in upon occasions. Ned's co-worker in the Farrell case, T. B. Fargo, alias T. B. Faga, alias I. B. Howard, is another of the same stripe. In the winter of 1864-65, he was an agent for Wells Fargo and Company in some of the western states where he was a defaulter. He has respectable connections east. His brother settled the matter for him and started him for California, where he arrived in June. On the passage he gambled with one Winters and Baker, and lost seven hundred dollars in greenbacks. From June until October he peddled Grant pictures. On the first of October, with thirty-seven others, he donned the police uniform, where he remained as the chief's confidential clerk until December 15, at which time the supervisors ordered the dismissal. But Fargo was kept around until Farrell was taken, and I think under pay. All this time he was living with one Hattie Shaw, a prostitute, at the corner of Washington and Pike Street. He used to wait upon her to the New York restaurant for meals, where she paid the bills. Sometimes he carried her meals to her room. He borrowed some three hundred dollars from Hattie, telling her that he had a draft on Wells Fargo and Company for two thousand dollars, which he would get cashed and pay her. Ned Wellington here comes in and tells Hattie that he has seen the draft and that Fargo is a gentleman, etc., but the draft never came, and Hattie had to go home with him in order to get coin. After leaving the police force, he, through Captain Lee's influence, got a place with Donahue and Booth. Fargo represented to them that he was actually starving, and borrowed twenty dollars. Next day he was out riding with Hattie, and got discharged, being there but a week or so. He then got into Wells Fargo and Companies during Mr. McLean's sickness, but was discharged as soon as he recovered. During all this time the police were well aware of what kind of a man Fargo was, and there was no reason why the chief and commissioners should not know. Mr. William McCaffrey, who is well known in this city, took pains to tell them of his doings. On the 13th of June Fargo went east on the opposition steamer. He bought tickets in the name of T. B. Howard and Mrs. Howard for himself and Hattie. On the steamer he went by the name of Fargo, and claimed to be the brother of Fargo, of Wells, Fargo and Company, so you see thieves have the inside track with Burke and Company. I think that last remark of my historian noise is rather severe, but let it pass. But I want Fitz Smythe to republish another flaming chapter in the history of the San Francisco police, and add the above chapter to it and glorify the chief's confidential clerk Mr. Fargo, not Crawford, Fitz Smythe, and Indian Ned Wellington, not Smith, Fitz Smythe, and also Buckingham, whom you scarcely deigned to notice while he was on trial for gobbling up the widow's jewelry. I don't want all the glory fastened on the captains and chiefs and regulars, and the deeds of the specials, the scallywags who really do all the work, left unsung. Tune up another column of praise of them, and blast away, idolatrous Fitz Smythe.
Territorial Enterprise, January 16th through 18th, 1866. Portion of San Francisco Letter. Fitz Smythe's Horse. Yesterday, as I was coming along through a back alley, I glanced over a fence, and there was Fitz Smythe's horse. I can easily understand now why that horse always looks so dejected and indifferent to the things of this world. They feed him on old newspapers. I had often seen Smythe carrying dead loads of old exchanges uptown, but I never suspected that they were to put to such a use as this. A boy came up while I stood there and said, "'That horse belongs to Mr. Fitz Smythe, and the old man—that's my father, you know—the old man's going to kill him.' "'Who, Fitz Smythe?' "'No, the horse, because he et up a litter of pups that the old man wouldn't be taken forty dollars.' "'Who, Fitz Smythe?' "'No, the horse, and he eats fences and everything, took our gate off and carried it home and et up every damn splinter of it.' You wait till he gets done with them old altas and bulletins he's a-chawin' on now, and you'll see him branch out and tackle anything he can shed his mouth on. Why, he nipped a little boy Sunday, which was going home from Sunday school. Well, the boy got loose, you know, but that old horse got his Bible and some tracts, and them's as good a thing as he wants, being so used to papers, you see. You put anything to eat anywheres, and that old horse'll shin out and get it and he'll eat anything he can bite, and he don't care a damn. He'd climb a tree, he would, if you was to put anything up there for him. Cats, for instance. He likes cats. He's set up every cat there was here in four blocks. He'll take more chances. Why, he'll bust in anywheres for one of them fellers. I see him snake a old tom cat out of that there flower-pot over yonder, where she was a-sunning of herself, and take her down, and she a-hanging on and grabbling for a holt on something, and you could hear her yowl and kick up and tear around after she was inside of him. You see, Mr. Fitz Smythe don't give him nothing to eat but them old newspapers, and sometimes a basket of shavings, and so, you know, he's got to prospect or starve, and a hoss ain't going to starve, it ain't likely, on account of not wanting to be rough on cats and such things. Not that hoss, anyway, you bet you. Because he don't care a damn." You turn him loose once on this town, and don't you know he'd eat up more good boxes and fences and clothing store things and animals and all them kinds of valuables? Oh, you bet he would, because that's his style, you know, and he don't care a damn. But you ought to see Mr. Fitz Smythe ride him around prospecting for them items. You ought to see him with his soldier coat on, and his mustachers sticking out strong like a catfish's horns, and them long legs of his and standing out so, like them two prongs they prop up a stepladder with, and a jolting down street at four mile a week. Oh, what a guy! Sets up stiff like a clothespin, you know and thinks he looks like old General McDowell. But the old man's going to hornet-swoggle that hoss on account of his gobbling up them pups. Oh, you bet your life the old man's down on him. Yes, sir, coming. And the entertaining boy departed to see what the old man was calling him for. But I am glad that I met the boy, and I am glad I saw the horse taking his literary breakfast because I know now why the animal looks so discouraged when I see Fitz Smythe rambling down Montgomery Street on him. He has altogether too rough a time getting a living to be cheerful and frivolous or anyways frisky. 
What have the police been doing? Ain't they virtuous? Don't they take good care of the city? Is not their constant vigilance and efficiency shown in the fact that roughs and rowdies here are awed into good conduct? Isn't it shown in the fact that ladies even on the back streets are safe from insult in the daytime when they are under the protection of a regiment of soldiers? Isn't it shown in the fact that although many offenders of importance go unpunished, they infallibly snaffle every Chinese chicken thief that attempts to drive his trade, and are duly glorified by name in the papers for it? Isn't it shown in the fact that they are always on the lookout and keep out of the way and never get run over by wagons and things? And ain't they spry? Ain't they energetic? Ain't they frisky? Don't they parade up and down the sidewalk at the rate of a block an hour and make everybody nervous and dizzy with their frightful velocity? Don't they keep their clothes nice? And ain't their hands soft? And don't they work? Don't they work like horses? Don't they now? Don't they smile sweetly on the women? And when they are fatigued with their exertions, don't they back up against a lamp-post and go on smiling till they break plumb down? But ain't they nice? That's it, you know. Ain't they nice? They don't sweat. You never see one of those fellows sweat. Why, if you were to see a policeman sweating, you would say, Oh, here this poor man is going to die, because this sort of thing is unnatural, you know. Oh, no, you never see one of those fellows sweat. And ain't they easy and comfortable and happy, always leaning up against a lamp-post in the sun, and scratching one shin with the other foot and enjoying themselves? Serene? I reckon not. I don't know anything the matter with the department, but maybe Dr. Rowell does— now, when Zela broke that poor wretch's skull the other night for stealing six bits worth of flour sacks, and had him taken to the station-house by a policeman, and jammed into one of the cells in the most humorous way, do you think there was anything wrong there? I don't. Why should they arrest Zela and say, Oh, come, now, you say you found this stranger stealing on your premises, and we know you knocked him on the head with your club, but then you better go in the cell, too till uh, we see whether there's going to be any other account of the thing, any account that mightn't jibe with yours altogether, you know. You go in there for confessed assault and battery, you know. Why should they do that? Well, nobody ever said they did. And why shouldn't they shove that half-senseless wounded man into a cell without getting a doctor to examine and see how badly he was hurt, and consider that next day would be time enough, if he chanced to live that long? And why shouldn't the jailer let him alone when he found him in a dead stupor two hours later? Let him alone because he couldn't wake him. Couldn't wake a man who was sleeping, and with that calm serenity which is peculiar to men whose heads have been caved in with a club. Couldn't wake such a subject, but never suspected that there was anything unusual in the circumstance? Why shouldn't the jailer do so? Why, certainly. Why shouldn't he? The man was an infernal stranger. He had no vote. Besides, had not a gentleman just said he stole some flour-sacks? Ah, and if he stole flour-sacks, did he not deliberately put himself outside the pale of humanity and Christian sympathy by that hellish act? I think so. The department thinks so. Therefore, when the stranger died at seven in the morning, after four hours of refreshing slumber in that cell, with his skull actually split in twain from front to rear, 
like an apple, as was ascertained by post-mortem examination, what the very devil do you want to go and find fault with the prison officers for? You're always putting in your shovel. Can't you find somebody to pick on besides the police? It takes all my time to defend them from people's attacks. I know the police department is a kind, humane, and generous institution. Why, it was no longer ago than yesterday that I was reminded of that time Captain Lees broke his leg. Didn't the free-handed, noble department shine forth with a dazzling radiance then? Didn't the chief detail officers Shields, Ward, and two others to watch over him and nurse him and look after all his wants with motherly solicitude? Four of them, you know. Four of the very biggest and ablest-bodied men on the force, when less generous people would have thought two nurses sufficient, had these four acrobats in active hospital service that way in the most liberal manner, at a cost to the city of San Francisco of only the trifling sum of five hundred dollars a month, the same being the salaries of four officers of the regular police force at a hundred and twenty-five dollars a month each. But don't you know there are people mean enough to say that Captain Lees ought to have paid his own nurse bills? and that if he had had to do it, maybe he would have managed to worry along on less than five hundred dollars a month of nursing a month. And don't you know that they say also that interest parties are always badgering the supervisors with petitions for an increase of the police force, and showing such increase to be a terrible necessity, and yet they have always got to be hunting up and creating new civil offices and berths, and making details for nurse service in order to find something for them to do after they get them appointed. And don't you know that they say that they wish to God the city would hire a detachment of nurses and keep them where they will be handy in case of accident, so that property will not be left unprotected while policemen are absent on duty in sick rooms? You can't think how it aggravates me to hear such harsh remarks about our virtuous police force. Ah, well— the police will have their reward hereafter, no doubt. Territorial Enterprise, January 1866 The Kearney Street Ghost Story Disembodied spirits have been on the rampage now for more than a month past in the house of one Albert Crum in Kearney Street, so much so that the family find it impossible to keep a servant forty-eight hours. The moment a new and unsuspecting servant-maid gets fairly to bed and her light blown out, one of those dead and damned scallywags takes her by the hair and just hazes her, grabs her by the waterfall, and snakes her out of bed and bounces her on the floor two or three times. Other disorderly corpses shy old boots at her head, and boot-jacks, and brittle chamber furniture, wash-bowls, pitchers, hair-oil, teeth-brushes hoop-skirts, anything that comes handy those phantoms seize and hurl at Bridget, and pay no more attention to her howling than if it were music. The spirits tramp, tramp, tramp about the house at dead of night, and when a light is struck the footsteps cease, and the promenader is not visible. And just as soon as the light is out, that dead man goes waltzing around again. They are a bloody lot." The young lady of the house was lying in bed one night with the gas turned down low, when a figure approached her through the gloom, whose ghastly aspect and solemn carriage chilled her to the heart. What do you suppose she did? Jumped up and seized the intruder? Threw a slipper at him? Laid him with a misquotation from Scripture? No, 
none of these but with admirable presence of mind she covered up her head and yelled that is what she did few young women would have thought of doing that the ghost came and stood by the bed and groaned a deep agonizing heart-broken groan and laid a bloody kitten on the pillow by the girl's head and then it groaned again and sighed oh god and must it be and bet another bloody kitten it groaned a third time in sorrow and tribulation and went one kitten better and thus the sorrowing spirit stood there moaning in its anguish and unloading its mewing cargo until it had stacked up a whole litter of nine little bloody kittens on the girl's pillow and then still moaning moved away and vanished when lights were brought there were the kittens with the finger marks of bloody hands upon their white fur and the old mother cat that had come after them swelled her tail in mortal fear and refused to take hold of them what do you think of that what would you think of a ghost that came to your bedside at dead of night and had kittens reprinted in the golden era january twenty eighth eighteen sixty six territorial enterprise january eighteen sixty six busted and gone abroad the term busted applies to most people here when a noted speculator breaks you all hear of it but when smith and jones and brown go under they make no stir they are talked about among a small circle of gratified acquaintances but they industriously keep up appearances and the world at large go on thinking them as rich as ever the lists of rich stock operators of two years ago have quickly sunk beneath the wave and financially gone to the devil smithers who owned a hundred and ninety-six feet in one of the big mines and gave such costly parties has sent his family to europe blivens who owned so much in another big mine and kept such fast horses has sent his family to germany for their health where they can sport a princely magnificence on fifty dollars a month bloggs who was high you a muck of another great mine has sent his family home to rusticate a while with his father-in-law all the nabobs of sixty-three are pretty much ruined but they send their families foraging in foreign climes and hide their poverty under a show of appearances if a man's family start anywhere on the steamer now the public say there's the death-rattle again another croesus has gone in these are sad sad times we are all busted and our families are exiled in foreign lands territorial enterprise january eighteen sixty six the chapman family the old gentleman and the old lady must be seventy-five years old now they used to play with dan marble in new orleans twenty-five years ago earlier they had a theatre built in a broad horn and floated down the ohio and mississippi clear to the belize tying up every night and knocking richard the third endways for the delectation of any number of graybacks that chose to come from a dozen to a thousand and selling tickets for money when they could and taking salt lake currency when they couldn't they have played in canada and all over california and washoe played everywhere in north america i may say and lo i come to tell you that they still keep up their lick i have been honored with a letter from the old lady dated helena last chance montana territory december sixteenth she says that they are just five miles from the missouri river i suppose they will build a raft in the spring and 
float down the river, astonishing the Indians with Othello, Richard, Jack Shepard, etc., and the next thing we hear of them, they will be in New Orleans again. The old lady further says, We have a theater and company of Denverites, and are doing well. It is so cold that the quicksilver all froze, or I would tell you how many degrees below zero. Provisions high, salt, one dollar per pound, butter, two dollars and fifty cents, flour, thirty dollars, and it would not do for you to be here, for tobacco is six dollars a pound and scarce. So cold that fifty head of cattle and two men who were herding them froze to death on the night of the fourteenth. Great deal of suffering among miners who were out prospecting. This is a lively town, adjoining camps deserted, everybody wintering here. I play the part of Richard III tonight. Next week I appear as Mazeppa. We charge a dollar fifty for all seats. The idea of the jolly motherly old lady stripping to her shirt and riding a fiery untamed Montana jackass up flights of stairs and kicking and caverting around the stage on him with the quicksilver frozen in the thermometers and the audience taking brandy punches out of their pockets and biting them, same as people eat peanuts in civilized lands, why, there is no end to the old woman's energy. She'll go through with Mazeppa with flying colors even if she has to do it with icicles a yard long hanging to her jackass's tail. Territorial Enterprise, January 1866 Sabbath Reflections This is the Sabbath today. This is the day set apart by a benignant Creator for rest, for repose from the wearying toils of the week, and for calm and serious— Brown's dog has commenced to howl again— I wonder why Brown persists in keeping that dog chained up. Meditation upon those tremendous subjects pertaining to our future existence. How thankful we ought to be, there goes that rooster now, for this sweet respite. How fervently we ought to lift up our voices and, confound that old hen, lays an egg every forty minutes, and then cackles until she lays the next one. Testify our gratitude." How sadly, how soothingly, the music of that deep-toned bell floats up from the distant church! How gratefully we murmur! Scat! That old gray tomcat is always bully-ragging that other one. Got him down now, and digging the hair out of him by the handful. Thanksgiving for these Sabbath blessings! How lovely the day is! By a broom! By a broom! How wild and beautiful the golden era, and sun to mercury, two for a bit apiece. Sun smites upon the tranquil, altamon and call, and merkin plague, city. Potatoes, ten pounds for two bits. Potatoes, ten pounds for quarter of a dollar. However, never mind these Sunday reflections. There are too many distracting influences abroad. This people have forgotten that San Francisco is not a ranch, or, rather, that it ought not properly to be a ranch. It has got all the disagreeable features of a ranch, though. Every citizen keeps from ten to five hundred chickens, and these crow and cackle all day and all night. They stand watches, and the watch on duty makes a racket while the off-watch sleeps. Let a stranger get outside of Montgomery and Kearney from Pacific to Second, and close his eyes— and he can imagine himself on a well-stocked farm, without an effort, 
for his ears will be assailed by such a vile din of gobbling of turkeys and crowing of hoarse-voiced roosters and cackling of hens and howling of cows and whinnying of horses and braying of jackasses and yowling of cats that he will be driven to frenzy and may look to perform prodigies of blasphemy such as he never knew himself capable of before sunday reflections a man might as well try to reflect in bedlam as in san francisco when her millions of livestock are in tune being calm now i will call down no curse upon these dumb brutes as they are called by courtesy but i will go so far as to say i wish they may all die without issue and that a sudden and violent death may overtake any person who afterwards attempts to reinstate the foul and brute nuisance. Territorial Enterprise, January 1866, dated January 24, 1866. More Outcroppings. 1. I find the following mysterious notice glaringly displayed in the advertising columns of the bulletin. Outcroppings. The second volume, compiled by W., will be issued next week. Who is the publisher? There is no name mentioned, and I cannot conjecture. But that is of small consequence. What interests us more is to know who W. is. Is it Wentworth? May Wentworth? Or is it Wash Wright? Or is it Washington Second? Or is it Winnemucca? Or is it the old original Wangdoodle? I shall have to inquire into this matter, unless W. comes forward with the information himself very soon. If the volume were not promised next week, we might suppose it was the first of Bancroft's forthcoming nine volumes of California verse. But you know we are not to look for any portion of that work before July. This second volume of Outcroppings is a humbug of some kind or other, no doubt. Territorial Enterprise, January 30th and 31st, 1866. Portion of San Francisco Letter. January 28th, 1866. Close out. The fine restaurant between Clay and Commercial on Montgomery Street has been sold at auction. It was fitted up three months ago at a cost of $3,600 and brought only 1400 yesterday under the hammer. At first it did a prosperous business, made money fast. Everybody was glad of it, for the proprietor was an estimable man, and was struggling to gather together by honest industry a small independence, so that he might go back to the fatherland of his daily dreams, and clasp once more to his breast the wife who has waited and watched for him through weary years, kiss once more his little ones, and hear their innocent prattle, and their childish glee, and the music of their restless little feet. But about that time Fitz Smythe went there to board, and that let him out, you know. But such is human life. Here today and gone tomorrow. A dream, a shadow, a ripple on the water. A thing for invisible gods to sport with for a season, and then toss idly by, idly by. It is rough. Bearding the Fenian in his lair text partially reconstructed from the celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County and other sketches. Wishing to post myself on one of the most current topics of the day, I hunted up an old friend, Dennis McCarthy, who is editor of the new Fenian Journal in San Francisco, The Irish People. 
I found him sitting on a sumptuous candle-box in his shirt-sleeves, solacing himself with a whiff of the national dudeen, or caubeen, or whatever they call it, a clay pipe with no stem to speak of. I thought it might flatter him to address him in his native tongue, and so I bowed with considerable grace, and said, Ara! And he said, Pejabers! Oh, hon! said I. Bavurin dilish, akushla kamashri! replied the McCarthy. Erin go bra! I continued with vivacity. A store! responded the McCarthy. Taranyons! said I. Beda hussus! Fagarogamish looms! said the bold Fenian. You have me there, be me saul! said I for I am not up with the niceties of the language, you understand. I only know enough of it to enable me to keep a me end up in an ordinary conversation. Ne'er de mode. What a comfort these reporters do take in that graveyard word. They stick it in at the end of an item, in all its native impenetrability, and then slash away cheerfully and finish the paragraph. It is too many for me, that word is, for all it is so handy. Sometimes they write up a fine item about the capture of a chicken thief, and head it Neodemode, or an exciting story of an infant with good clothes on and a strawberry on its little left arm, and a coat of arms stitched on its poor little shirt-tail being left in a market-basket on someone's doorstep, and head it Neodemode, or an entertaining account of a crazy man going through his family, and making it exceedingly warm for the same, and head it Neodemode or an item about a large funeral, or a banquet, or a ball, or a wedding, or a prayer-meeting, anything, no matter what, all the same. They head it Neodemode. It is the handiest heading I ever saw. It appears to fit any subject you please to tack it to. Why, here lately they have even got to using it in items concerning the taking out of naturalization papers by foreigners. There is altogether too much Neodemy around to suit me. I would not mind it so much if it were not quite such an ugly word, and if I had a sort of general notion of what in the mischief it means. I would like to hear from one of the Neodamites. I've got to go now and report a sermon. I trust it will be pleasanter work than writing a letter on Sunday, while the dogs and cats and chickens are glorifying their Maker and raising the mischief. End of section 25